Stony Island Audio. What's up, America? Uh, the Globe. This is Open Mike Eagle. This is season three of What It Happened Was. Season three, episode two. We're doing a 12-episode retrospective catalog saga interview with Dante Ross. On this episode, we're going to get into an album that he executive produced? No, supervising producer. I read that on the credits. It's De La Souls, Three Feet High and Rising. For a lot of people, this will be this will be how they first heard of Dante Ross. He was called by something derogative, derogatory on the album, or pejorative. He was called Dante the Scrub. He has feelings about it. We're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into a lot of things. This is when he joined Tommy Boy Records. He didn't sign De La, but they were the first act that he was assigned to when he started working at Tommy Boy. Gonna hear all about it in just a moment. Thanks to everybody for tuning in last week to the season debut. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for spreading the love. Every tweet means a lot. Every Facebook post means a lot. Make some TikToks. That'll mean a lot. Snuck that in there. Please rate and review and subscribe if you like good things. That helps good things appear good to people that spend money. <laughs> it helps the robots love us. Help the robots love us. This podcast is part of the Stony Island Audio Network. It's a network that I curate. Stony Island Audio is the home for creator conversation. And one of the jewels in our crown is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Yo, what's up? This is Damone Carter, a.k.a. Doom One. This is David Ma. This is Nate LeBlanc. And we are... Dad Bar Rap Pod. A weekly podcast on the Stony Island Network. Every week, we talk to people who are moving and shaping hip-hop culture. Dave, why don't you tell them about some of the folks that we've talked to? We've spoken to Feral Monch, DJ Shadow, Too Short, Slug, Corrupt, Merce, Vast Air... We've even spoken to this season's guest on what had happened was Dante Ross. Dead Bod Rap Pod comes to you every week. We are talking to writers, journalists, authors, rappers, producers, the stalwarts of underground hip hop culture. We're talking to more rappers than the weed man. This is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Please tune in. You tuned into this one, tune into that one next. My name is Open Mike Eagle. This is What It Happened Was, part of the Stony Island Audio Network. Let's get into it. Dante Ross, De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. Welcome, man. This is Open Mike Eagle. This is season three of What It Happened Was, y'all. We got another very special guest with us. He needs no introduction, but... If you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre. Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker. Aganar Innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters. Office Messenger, the Grammy winner. Motherfucker Dante Ross. In the 90s, you would call him the plug. Signing act after dope act. He saw in the clubs as Pete Seagull leaders dealing all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. 
And what up, everybody out there on the internet? My name is Open Mike Eagle, and uh, rocking with you today, uh, talking to the OG, the legend, the one and only Mr. Dante Ross. How you doing today, man? Good, man. When last we left off, we were talking about uh, your beginnings in the industry and your beginnings of like falling totally in love with the culture of hip hop. And um, you had been working for Russell Simmons, Lear Cohen at uh, Rush Management and Rush Productions. Rush Productions. you had found your way into a job at Tommy Boy. So we talked through the, you know, kind of the little bit of awkwardness, but also excitement around leaving the situation you were in and going to a new one. Um, what year was it when you made this career change and got this new gig? I want to say it was 87. I start, end, end of 87, early 88, I think. I got to look yeah. at the chronological Okay, that makes sense, right? Because then the album comes out in, what, 88? Yeah. So the album comes out in 88. So, man, it might have been, it was 87, top of 87. Because we put out, um, you know, Pottles in My Lawn and, and then... Um, plug um, tuning. How come, how come I always get the order wrong? Yeah, plug tuning and then Pottles in My Lawn. Plug tuning was already queued up when I kind of walked in the building they, okay. were, they were dead signed them and plug tuning was was getting ready to drop and that was like I had the pleasure of giving that record to Red Alert so you know it was um and he started to bump it off dump, jump then we dropped I think we dropped Pottles in My Lawn in the summertime I remember my friend Ari Macopoulos was like a famous skateboard photographer he did all the Supreme shit in the beginning oh, sick. he shot the cover and, and I remember the day we shot it so I want to say it was, it was a hot day because I, I came back I was sunburned <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it was like June I think and um, you know it was um, and then we, we started working on the album and I remember getting told the album was going to push the first quarter of 88 and I was, I was kind of upset about it why were you upset? Because I didn't know how things work. Okay. So that kind of speaks to my first question here, right? Because you're starting your first official gig in the, like, in the industry with the, with the title. Because before that, uh, you were kind of on an assistant level. Right, right. Um, yeah, <laughs> if Maybe. even, right? Uh, so you go to Tommy Boy for your first gig. And I'm curious what Tommy Boy's rep was in the streets or the industry at that time. Since they were, they were relatively a new company or, or had they been along for a while? Nah, nah, they were, they, you know, because, nah, they've been around. They're from the beginning. I mean, Tommy Boy is there when Def Jam starts. I think Tommy Boy, I know Tommy Boy predates Def Jam because ah, Planet okay, Rock is on Tommy Boy. And so it's like Johnson Crew and, and a whole bunch of other shit. Um, Planet Patrol, I think. So they were already, they were like a big electro kind of rap label. Gotcha. And they had hit some, some lean years. Right. There were some lean seasons. They had Force MDs and Stetsasonic, basically. Right. And Force right. MDs was like, I, I want to say the breadwinner. They had TKA. It was like a pretty big freestyle group as well. So, you know, stepping into Tommy Boy, coming from Rush, what was it like working with Monica Lynch versus working with Monica was like, she was a breath of fresh air. She's a wonderful person, super sweet, nice, um, wise, um, compassionate, empathetic, um, funny, and, and lighthearted. So it was really different. The intensity level was, wasn't the same. It wasn't... Um, eat or be it wasn't like kill or be killed mm-hmm. type of thing and that's how you kind of felt working for Lior. it lacked like a a masculine kind of tox, toxic kind of environment mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't as macho everyone didn't have their chest puffed out so it was a much calmer environment and much more um nurturing so you know it was it was a really nice place to work to be honest and monica is like 
I mean, she's the OG. She's great. She's amazing and smart, understands music. And I think one thing that she never gets credit for, I always feel like she's one of the greatest marketing people. She's one of the first people to market her label. So, you know, Tommy Boy, there was a Tommy Boy Carhartt jacket she made with Stussy. That was like, you know, that jacket gets like $10,000 now online if you can find it. But that was like one of the first examples of that. And the way she kind of um, marketed De La Soul, which they came to to hate, but she was responsible for a lot of the kind of um, embracing of the hippie kind of thing that went along with De La Soul. They started that. They were wearing tie-dye and they liked peace signs and all of that. But she really emphasized that as a marketing thing, um, kind of knowing that, people would gravitate towards it. Uh-huh. And, and that was like one of her real strengths. She was really good at that shit. Um, really good at it in a way that wasn't corny. Right. So you described Dela as having kind of fallen into your lap because she had signed them before. She had. She had played me their demo and she was trying to get the deal done when I went for the first job interview. And then she had signed them in the interim of me getting the job. How many interviews did you do? Two. Okay. Um, but I knew Mo. She was like my friend. Like, I'd see her hanging out. We were, we were cool. And she interviewed me because Daddy O lined me up in the interview. He, he suggested they talk to me. They offered him the job. He didn't want it. And um, I went to one interview, and she played me that, and it was cool. It was a good-ass interview. And that was maybe a, it was maybe Thanksgiving-ish. And um, she called me back right before Christmas, and it was snowing out, and I went over there, and she played she, – she had played me De La the first time, and I really liked it. And, and she was like, yeah, so, you know, you know, can you start top of the year? And I was like, hell yeah. And she was like, and that group you really like, that's going to be your first project. It was De La Soul. What song did she play you, if you remember, in um, that first? It was um, pl- Plug Tuning and tuning. Jennifer. Yeah, that was all, I mean, Freedom to Speak. That's all they had. And you immediately – uh, reacted to it like it. You thought it was. You thought it was something new and hip. How could you not? Plug tuning was dope. I remember distinctly. I always remember. So I don't know why. So it sounded like Slick Rick, Rick meets Ultra Magnetic. Mm. You know. I liked it because it was really dusted. I was like, I was like, super dusted record. It's fucking cool. What does dust? I never heard what nothing like dusted it mean? I'm like weird, okay. like cool, like fresh. <laughs> like that's like a Beastie Boys word. Like they'd be like, you know, dusted, dusted. He got busted. Like. You know, it was dusted. That shit was fresh. It really comes from Russell. Russell used to always say shit was dusted because he was, you know, he was like, it means many things, but <laughs> Russell, I think, liked Angel Dust at one time. That's what, that's what it, you know, it kind of has that illusion. Like, it sounds like something. It does. I mean, that's where it comes from. Angel yeah, Dust. Like, okay. But if it's dusted, shit, it's ill. It's like bugged the fuck right. out. So it's like dope so, meaning dope, coming from dope. Like, kind of right. the same it's thing. It's dope, but it's like, it, it's a little more nefarious. <laughs> Like dope doesn't mean weird. Right. Dusted means kind of weird, but but dope. Like sneaky dope. I, I could dig it. Yeah. Um, like weird, weird fresh. <laughs> um, so you come into this this label. What is your actual position? Like what what job? I'm A and R. I think I was. Um, I can't remember if it was director of A and R or or A and R rep. I was the A and R guy, and I made myself director of A and R. I want to make cards. Because I was, and I always just say, because I'm directing myself. <laughs> so I was the director of A&R. And I guess, you know, we did kind of things by committee. But, but um, I was, you know, I was ambitious and a force of my own on some level. So Were there other A&Rs at the label at the time or was it just you? There weren't people who were tasked with the title of A&R, but it was once again, like Jive did it like that too, kind of by committee. So we'd have meetings and it'd be Monica, Rod Houston, me, um, uh, Steve, 
Knutson and and maybe some other people. I remember there was a few times it got it got testy where people didn't like shit and other people liked and blah blah mm-hmm. blah. So I come into the industry like you know I'm in the industry, but I come into it like especially on the indie level. Like no such thing as an A and R, right? So I have my ideas of what an A and R is supposed to do, but I never actually experienced it. So for my own enlightenment and also for people out there who really have no idea, I'd love to hear you describe like what the duties of being an A and R, especially at that time entail. First and foremost, it's always finding talent, right? Finding, finding artists, finding music. And then it's also finding producers, songwriters, and then a menial task of finding studios to work in, engineers who could do the session. And then acquiring POs to make sure the sessions get paid for. What's what's a oh, PO purchase order? Yeah, okay. so you have to make sure the PO gets there, and you have to talk to the accounting guy and say, okay, the PO for Clyde P Studios for four De La sessions, blah blah blah. So you need to schedule with the band, make sure everyone can be there on time, and that's that's the the, the long short of it. There's more intricacies to it, mm-hmm. but but you know you have to kind of also on a big major label, you're more also um. You're the band cheerleader. So you're the, the centerpiece for the messaging. So you have to go and kind of, you know, raise your flag for people and, and walk the halls and get music to people and get people enthusiastic. You also have to figure out the deals and you have to sell the dream to the band. Interesting. So that's a really hard part of it. With Daylight, I didn't have to do that. And, and actually, and it wasn't that hard to sell the dream back then. You know, people wanted record deals. Right. If you could, you know, without having to name any clear examples... What's it like for an artist when they're signed to a label and the A&R isn't cheerleading for them? Like, what, what is that like for them? Mm, that's a good question. might have um, a manager who has a relationship there who, who's doing the cheerleading, right? Mm. So it doesn't mean it's not going to pop off, but it probably makes it a little harder. And you would hope that the person who signed you and helped make your record is your cheerleader. Like, you know, the, the way it works now, though, if you spend like right. $3 million to sign the weekend, um, it walks in with so much so much steroids on its back that everyone's going to try and recoup that money anyway. But in a smaller environment, it's, you know, mm-hmm. back then it was very important. It was vital. So in those, in those same environments now, if there's analogs to draw and that position oftentimes doesn't exist how it used to, how do you think that business, I mean, you don't have to think clearly because you know, but how does that business get handled now when there aren't as many A&Rs, but there's still all these big projects coming out? Well, I think there's as many A&Rs. I think that's a misconception. I think okay. there's tons of A&R guys. That's a good question. I mean, it, it all depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when things look like they're going to pop, a lot of hands get in that pot. Right. A lot of people want to be involved. And sometimes people even literally take a band from you. I've seen Craig Kalman do it a few times. I've seen it happen a few times where the band gets kind of plucked from the guy who signed it. And, and someone has another vision who's more empowered, and they're going to go and they're going to run with their rock. That's really um, interesting. Sylvia Rohn kind of did it to me with Bustin' Rhymes a little bit. It happens sometimes. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. I don't think it's necessarily good or bad. There's no, no um, you know, concrete, um, you know, good or bad to it. It's kind of a gray area. But that's, that's one thing. And, um, you know, nowadays, like, there's no secrets so because it's all research-driven. Every single person knows what the other person's doing. So, you know, Warner Brothers got the same research as Universal mm. as everyone else. And then there's all the sub-labels because there's only really three, three real majors now, you know, and all the labels underneath. So that, that becomes a competitive thing, too, because Interscope and Def Jam and Capital and Caroline and whoever else, they're all going after the same shit with the same analytics. You know, that's how it is. 
So if we're taking it back to Dayla, uh, Dayla comes in signed off of two songs, Plug Tuning and Freedom of Speak. So from that point, and, and they get assigned to you, how do you guys go about starting to build the album? Well, the single connects. And then they say, go make another single. Mm. And that single connects. And they say, the album's greenlit. So, and those guys were making music the whole time. Okay. Paul was always making music. They're always constructing. Paul and Mason and Dave, you know, Paz, they're all conspiring and playing stuff and collecting records. And, you know, they're going to do an album regardless, I guess, in their own mind. So they, they, um, they get the green light and we, we camp out in Calliope, which is a, it was a cheap studio in Midtown on the west side, 30, 37th Street and 9th Avenue, between 8th and 9th. No, it's Broadway and 8th, sorry. And it was, um, it was way up top on, on one of the top floors. Had a little, like, penthouse thing. Like, you could look out. Um, and that's where we worked. That's where everyone worked. That's where Jungle Brothers worked. Mm. That's where I did Brand Nubians. That's where we did Latifah. Um, Stetsonic had worked there. Everyone worked there. It was like the, you know, the kind of nerve space. Like, it was the, the pulse of our little realm of hip-hop. And that's where everyone worked. Everyone worked there at Chunking or Green Street, but we didn't have the budgets to go to Chunking yet, so uh-huh. we were working at Calliope. So they're coming in having already made a bunch of songs. Mm, I don't know if they had made a bunch of songs, but they had a bunch of ideas. Okay. And, and we made a lot of the beats. They made them in the studio. Paul was the only guy I ever seen coming with a disc up to that point and put a disc in S900 and... Make have a song kind of ready to go. Uh-huh. Everything else is kind of made in the studio. But but they clearly had their ideas mapped out. They knew what record they're going to use with this and that and that and this. And that was it. And I, saw, I remember seeing t- Paul messing with early time compression on S900. And it was mind-boggling uh-huh. to me. Is there a song like like you clearly remember, like them coming in, making the beat, like it, was really, like it really impressed you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know me and Paz, well, Paz made it, but... You know, I had a lot of records, and I always had, like, a crate of records. When I came to the studio, I'd bring a big bag of records. And they listened to a bunch of them, and Paz and me were pretty close then. And he was like, yo, let me get that, um, that Lee Dorsey. And he sampled the Get Out My Life Woman. Get out my life, woman. You don't love me no more. And then he, sampled, he had the Otis Redding. He sampled the Otis Redding right there, the whistle. Oh, for and I, all the for other I know. Parts. Okay. Yeah, and he just put it all together right the Steely there. Steely Dan like, one, the Steely Dan song yep. too. Word. One hundred percent. He he had the Steely Dan joint. He had the Otis Redding joint, and I was like, "Ooh, that's ill." The Otis joint, and that was it. He made it right there, and then. They played it. He made it quick. He made that shit in like an hour, maybe, hour and change. And um, that became that song. Greetings, girl, and welcome to my world of phrasing right up to bat. It's the daisy age, and you're about to walk top stage, so wipe your lottoes on the mat, mat. What else do I remember? I remember Paul did me, myself, and I. He had that done. Mm-hmm. He came in with that. And I think Mace added the... But I could be wrong. I just remember in the studio, I know Paul added it, the, the little loose ends, little hits. He put that in there. The, the, um, the little, what's it, Wild Child, um, Stay a Wild, 
Wild Child, I think that's the song that they used on it. He has that, that little hit in it. So he used that, and I remember him making that right there with the rapper. And I remember knowing that he had the rapper dapper snapper in it. Clearly remember mm -hmm. that song. Um, I remember uh, uh, the joint that, so some of the titles I'm forgetting, but I remember they made the joint with Bra. I remember them making that in the studio. Um, I remember me, myself, and I, Plug Tooney, Knee Deep. I remember the magic number. Yeah. Because I remember with the, the, you know, obviously the schoolhouse rock shit and Three Feet High and Rising to Johnny Cash. I remember Postanus put that in there. That was crazy. It's already over all the wheat notes, two feet high and rising. That was super cool when he did that. Um, Take It Off, I remember that. Those are clear to me that I remember. Description. I am true goy. A dove like boy. Could wing spread, but instead I will employ. For sure. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I think those are the ones I really remember. Ghetto Thing. I remember them making Ghetto Thing. They made that in, in Calliope as well. Here's a question. So when you're working with Rush and Lior, how much experience did you have at that time being with their artists in the studio where they were making stuff? Did you see a lot of albums get made? Not a lot. I saw Public Enemy work on Bug Me Out is that Hank Shockley wasn't making the beat, that KG made the beat for Rebel. Mm. That bugged me the fuck out because I was like, wait, how's Hank the producer? You're not even here. I was weird. Um, <laughs> and I saw um, his brother made that. And then I seen um, DJ Pooh. I used to go to the studio and fuck with him because he was my man. He didn't, have, he didn't know a lot of people in New York. We mm -hmm. used to smoke weed together. I seen Pooh when he was making Jack the Ripper. And I was around third base when they were in the studio with Sam Sever. Most of my studio experience came from watching Sam Sever. And I've been at a couple of early Beastie sessions as well. Right. Were you in, in rap stuff? I'm curious because you're... Talking about especially Paz in these early daylight sessions, like he's literally putting loops together, taking you know all of them were. loops. All, all three of them were, but I just I, I guess I was around Paz a little more, but they all were, all three of them. Mace too. Mace definitely had a lot to do with it. As did Dave. They all had a lot of records. Were, was that something you were used to seeing? Was like rappers being that involved in the construction of the beats and the sounds on the albums? I had no context, so mm. I didn't have enough context prior to know how it worked or didn't work. When Sam Sever worked, he made everything. But I remember Pete Nice had ideas for a record, but Sam would do everything technical. So I guess it was unique. I guess I also figured that's the way you made records. And that seemed to be post-Daylaw, the way that people, a lot of people made records. Mm. And a lot of records were constructed in the studio because people didn't have home setups right. and or equipment. So... One thing I read that was interesting is while y'all were working on an album, you were also among your many duties. You were booking gigs from them. I was. I was booking gigs from out of my former mailroom office, and my office sound system was a box on my <laughs> desk. So, and there was like mail bags in the corner, and probably like a quarter pound of weed <laughs> in my desk because I was selling weed oh, out of the office. Shit. And Monica would be, and Monica would be like, "Why are these dudes coming by?" I was like, "Don't worry about it." Who's that? Who's that guy? He looks cool. I was like, oh, he's just an artist, and it was like, that's so funny. Why was you Why was you selling weed? If you got a, you got this gig, you 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 sitting pretty. Why you got to sell weed? I, make, I didn't make no money. Man. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't pay me shit. Even even working with Tommy Boy, you're not getting paid that much. Make shit. That's interesting. I made less than, I made like twenty six thousand dollars a year. Really? 
So you just really love this shit. I, I mean, I, I was a waiter before I did all this shit, and I would make like two, $200 a night, like four nights a week, cash, maybe more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I made money, and I, I literally had money saved up. So when I went to work at Rush for $225 off the books a week, right. that I could afford it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. literally. But I, when I worked at Tommy, I, might, I think I might have made 28000 or something. I lived in a railroad apartment. And no lie, I had a bathtub in my kitchen. Whoa. And I, I like, I have rudimentary carpentry skills, so I framed it out and I made it a fake bathroom. That's what's up. That's ingenuity. Yeah, was, that's that's, that's hip hop innovation right there. Man, that was like, a, you know, I, I knew how to do it because I built ramps from skateboarding as a kid. So I was like, let me fuck in. And my shit was makeshift. You know, I just like, you know, I wasn't pro. And that was really my house. Like, um, I didn't have no bread. and But I had a lot of fun. And I had an expense account so I could afford to take cabs mm-hmm. around and go out. Um, and that was cool. I could I could get a free dinner or lunch once or twice a week. And, and dinner back then was like a chicken parm sandwich at the pizzeria. There it is. You know, so it was it was definitely, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't flossy. I was living in a shithole, but I had fun. So you was booking gigs for Daylight. Uh, was that something you did for any other artists you work with, too? Yeah, I just... did it for Latifah. I think I booked Latifah more than Daylight, to be honest. Wow, that's interesting. And my man who who used to who helped me book the shit was Paul Stewart. His roommate was a guy named Matt McDaniel who made like a bunch of like. He shot a lot of footage of the riots and stuff. He was like a, a videographer, mm. and Matt was a promoter. And Matt would would Matt had a credit card scam. I found out when we were in LA <laughs> one time. I was like, "Yo, how you doing?" I was like, "Oh, I found out about the credit card scam." So we we were getting credit card scam flights out there from Matt, and we would play like at World on Wheels. Yeah. Or places like that, World on Wheels and Skateland. I think I, I booked Latifah probably a little more than Dela, but I did book Dela to go to LA twice. Yeah, that was one of the stories I read, and I would love to hear you tell that story of of, of bringing Dela out to World on Wheels. Yeah, and, and Dave and I always always make fun of this because me and Paz, we crossed, we were on Hollywood Boulevard, we were staying at the Holiday Inn over there by Highland, and we were um, going to the room, and we 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 jaywalked, mm-hmm. and we didn't know he couldn't jaywalk, and the cops were like. You, jaywalking, get against the wall. And we kept going. They were like, you, the white guy in the striped shirt and the black guy with the, you know, with the flat top, get against the fucking wall. And we're like, and, and Dave and them didn't jaywalk. And they were looking at us like, we looked back and we're like, oh, shit. And we went up against the wall and the cops were like, what the fuck are you doing? You jaywalked right the fuck in front of us. And I was like, man, we're from New York. That's how we do it. Yeah. They're like, let me tell you something, buddy. You don't do that in L.A. Next time you see a cop car, don't be an asshole and jaywalk in front of the car. And we had been in L.A. about four hours at that point. So we're like, <laughs> fuck, L.A.'s fucking weird as shit. So we're in L.A. And, and we were literally going to do our show at World on Wheels that night. And we did our show at World on Wheels. And we had met, I want to say I already knew Muggs, DJ Muggs. And I did know him. I met him in New York at the music seminar, I believe. He was already the homie. And Muggs lived with Matt McDaniel, so it was a really small world. Paul Stewart was Matt's boy. Matt did street promotion for him and book shows. Paul hooked me up with Matt, and Matt's roommate was DJ Muggs. So the first time we're in L.A., we hung out with Muggs and this dude named Louis Freeze. His name was Louie, and he was real quiet, and that guy was B-Real. Oh, shit. Okay. And B-Real told me, don't wear a red shirt over to World on Wheels. I had a red St. John's shirt. He said, hey, homeboy, take that off. Uh, I said, what? And he talked real low back then. I said, why? He said, well, you're going over there. You can't wear that, Holmes. 
Dang. And I was like, oh, shit, and I, I want to change my shit. And then when we came downstairs, I was like, yo, Lou, you coming with us? And I was like, come on, get in the And he was like, because 783, we were performing with Muggs in them, with 783. And, and he was like, no, nah, I can't go over there. And we're, I was like, huh? And then I remember later on, I had asked him and sent about that shit. And he was like, oh, yeah, man, well, that's all crypt out. That's Mansfield's Crips. We can't go over there. And we didn't know shit about gangbanging. We didn't know shit about no L.A. shit. N.W.A. wasn't really popping yet. Mm-hmm. It had just started to heat up. We knew 6 in the morning. We didn't know about all that. Right. And we played our World on Wheels. And World on Wheels was all Crips. Word. All Crips. 100% Crips. We performed with Ice-T and the Rhyme Syndicate and ice Ice kind of kicked like the early early game to us. We went. We ended up going up to Ice's house. He had the fish tanks. He lived up in the hills. He was showing me and me and Mace Tech Nines and shit. It was <laughs> ill. We had a bar, and then we had a barbecue at Muggs's Muggs and Matt's ghetto ass crib, and all the the future members of Cypress Hill were there. Mellow Man Ace was there. I I don't think Funk Doobie was there, but. A bunch of cats were, were there who were L.A. dudes who became our L.A. homies forever. It was, it was really interesting. It was bugged out. That was our experience in L.A. And I remember we were playing that world on wheels. This is so bugged out. I want to say, I, I, I went there two or three times, but I want to say it was this time with Dayla. I met Everlast. He was with the Rhyme Syndicate. It was definitely this time. I met Everlast. He was the only other white dude there. So it was like being in Japan and seeing another like white dude. <laughs> yeah. You're like, besides security, and there's a huge-ass fight. Uh, oh, first off, actually, 783 is doing that song, Why? And motherfuckers are crip walking. I've never seen this shit before. This is like what? And this is like 87, 88? It's when, well, Why I think is on Colors, so it's whatever year Colors mm-hmm. came out around. So it's before 783 did an album, and, and um, dudes is crip walking, throwing up shit, and they're all wearing New York Yankees, Georgetown, Dallas Cowboys. Those are like the shit they're wearing, not even Dodger shit. I don't know, Georgetown, but it's all dark blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were crip walking. When they were doing the song, Why, motherfuckers going, they were like, why does a man have to die for the color of his rag? Motherfuckers were like, that's why, motherfucker. Wow. And we were like, what the fuck is going on? And then, and then Dayla performs, and we're, you know, we're, this is like, you know, we're like New York dudes, almost dressed like kid and play. We got, we got flat tops. Yeah, and like how, did how did y'all think it was going to go? Like, we didn't know. Okay. We didn't have no concept. Right. There was no conception of it. You know, the dudes I knew before I knew Muggs and them in L.A. were delicious vinyls, and they're, uh-huh. they're a bunch of white boys. Yeah. They're like slacker white boy stoners. So so I didn't know. You know, I know the beasties are out there, and I just didn't know. I didn't know King T or any of them dudes. So, I mean, we rocked, though. The show killed because the Good. record was getting That's killed. They were playing the show, the song on K-Day like a motherfucker. Plug tuning? We literally, you know, we got off the plane. Matt took us right to K-Day. Then we went to the hotel cleaned up and we went and did the show mm-hmm. just like that um and then the next day we had the barbecue but so at the end of the show i can't remember who performed after us but shit jumped off it was a huge ass brawl my fucking huge ass fight and a, and dudes was fucking security up <laughs> they was fucking them up and then they got the dudes they finally caught the dude fucked them up security they chained the doors in the club yeah they locked us yep. up in the club yeah we're locked in the club in the, the back room wheels, and, yep. yeah and everlast was with us and we heard guns going off dudes Whoa. and someone was like they dumping outside and i never heard that before we're like dumping they're taking <laughs> shit like i remember that they're like nah man they letting off i was like oh i get it and and ice and them was laughing like henji was he's from new york i remember he was like yeah i'm from brooklyn and i was like oh that's ill um and so, you know, we just got to know them dudes because we're just stuck in a fucking dressing room when, <laughs> when fucking some gang-related shit's popping off. And, and that was like our first experience in L.A. But we, 
we loved it. We had a lot of fun. We went out afterwards to some after hours club that that like delicious type dudes were doing, and yeah. we seen the Beastie Boys, and they were like kind of like snapping on us, like they wasn't they, they didn't really know what De La Soul was yet. It was bugged mm. out. It was a bugged out little meeting. Now I remember De La were friends of the Beasties. Like yo, wow, yo, the Beastie Boys are dope. And I was like, really? You know, I didn't know that they really liked them, and and it was just um, it was bugged out. We saw them at this club, the Impala. Like we were like coming in when they were coming out. Terry B was on that show, I believe. It was a bugged out show, man. <laughs> I got Everlast number. He called me in the hotel the next day. I'll, I'll never forget that. And we invited him to barbecue, but he was like, "I'm all, all up in the valley. I don't have a car," so he didn't come. Um, but it was it was bugged out, man. That was bugged out. Man, that sounds awesome, man. It's funny I can just see all that shit in my head when you describe. Yeah, because we were like bright eyed, and we we're like, "What the fuck? <laughs> L.A. shit is bugged out." Because you know. L.A., we don't think L.A. back then, I don't think we had a concept that L.A. was really dangerous or gang-related. Right, yeah, because that was that was mostly just local at the time, and the people that really Colors was like, you know, that was our introduction to it. We didn't know about that shit. There wasn't no boys in the hood nationally yet. Like, you know, you just really had no way of knowing at that time. And and matter of fact, I know this is before Colors came out, because I remember when Colors came out. So Mm -hmm. it was before that. Because to me, Colors is when people got to know about gangbanging. So it's before that. This is around the time when only Dope Man was out. right. Right, right, right. Six in the morning was out, but we didn't really know about that. And to us, six in the morning sounded like a fake school you know, ED. PSK. Yeah, know, exactly. Fake, to us, it's fake school ED. It did, it did so. sound exactly like it. And NWA sounded like a fake, fake, um, a fake Beastie Boys. Mm, Dope Man sounded like sounded like Beastie Boys to me. Sound like Rick Rubin music. It did sound kind of sound like like Dre's early shit. Kind of had that kind of. That's interesting. The way the I way mean, say hey Dre, kick in the, the bass. bass. Yeah. You know, and that's like. That's like, you know, it sounded like Ad-Rock to me. Damn, that's crazy. I'm going to be chewing on that later. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Um, so getting back to the album. So, of course, one of the first times I hear you is numerous times on this album where they're referring to you as Dante the Scrub. The scrub. It's it's in one it's in one song. One, is it just so that, one song? Just one song, and it, 
And it's from Prince Paul Goddamn. Oh, but it, I think it's I think it's also in the album art or something like that. It too? is. It's in the okay, album okay. art. They right. made me a duck, and my friend's brother drew that. It's got Michael Human. He was like, I should kill him for doing that. Um, <laughs> but I thought it was funny, you know. And I that came from I went to we played basketball with them dudes. Uh huh. With Dela, and um, they they weren't the most athletic brothers. I could believe that. I could and believe I that. kept calling them scrubs. I was like, you motherfucking scrubs. Mm. And I was like, you know, that's where it came from. I just kept calling them scrubs. And so they flipped it back on you in the studio. They're like, we're going to get you back. And he's not getting a haircut either. Scrub. <laughs> How did you feel about it when you first heard it, like, like in the studio? I thought it was funny, and they gave me the option to take it off the record. I said, no, you can keep that. That's cool. That's what's up. That's yeah. what's up. Uh, did, that, did that have any effects on you in the real world, the fact that, like— It did. What people was that like? It was annoying, because people, even to this day, will, like, come out their face. I don't know them from jack shit. Right. And they take liberties. I don't, I don't appreciate it. That's what's up. It's good to let people know that, too, you know? Well, you know, like, research anything I'm here asking them about me. Like, I had a real problem with my hands when I was young. Mm. So, you know, you could say the wrong thing to me. I'll just tee off on you. Wow, okay. You no, know, I was like, I'd be like, yo, man, you know, I don't know you like that. So people was just coming at you left and right. Not left and right. Probably didn't want to come at me like that. But mm -hmm. but people would definitely, you know, overstep boundaries, you know, and I, I was pretty quick to check dudes for it. That's what's up. I know I slapped Dave Gossett upside his head for it one day. Dave Gossett. I remember him from... A&R guy. Black Sheep, dude. I Black Sheep, yeah. Dave Gossett. Right upside his head, right on the street. Like, what? Bong. Because he just... He said Dante the Scrub. Like, like yeah, that? He, like he, that? He, got, he, he was a little too loose with it. I ain't know him like that. Right. I was like, Damn. I don't know you like that. Damn. Yeah, Damn. you know. So, third base, too, you know, jumped on the bandwagon a little bit oh, later on. Oh, I bet on. they did. Yeah, so, I bet they did. That's funny, though. So how do you, I mean, so given that, right, like you thought it was cool, you had the option to take it off, you said you left it on because it was funny and it was getting you back, but then all these years later where, like, there's been incidents of people taking liberties about it, how do you feel about it now? I don't really like it. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're De La Soul or you're, like, Tribe, you're Tip or one of my peoples, that's good all day. Pete Nice could snap on me all day, but, you know, if I don't really know you, that's not really a place to do that. Like, where? you know, it doesn't happen much anymore. Because I, I, I don't think anyone knows that record anymore. You're right, exactly. Well, exactly. It's, it's, not, it's not as available, so people ain't really bumping it every week. You know, if it was on a little Yachty record, I'm sure <laughs> you would be saying it. You, yeah, 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 you're probably right. Um, so what did you think of the skits on the album? As y'all was, was great. I had no De La Souls. Like, I had no, um, one, I never tried to interject anything into the album other than hey you want to borrow this record mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so that's that that's one you know sometimes and i guess i was lucky to learn this early as an AR person and as a record producer by doing less you do more mm. there are those instances when you don't you're not obtrusive or when you're producing a record you pull things out to make it bigger right certain things conflict with each other and and you know sonically but but also you know like when someone's on the right path musically, get out of their way. Mm. And, and just reinforce, if you have the opportunity, reinforce what they can in an unobtrusive manner, what you can. Be like, you know, oh, yeah, that's dope. Maybe turn the vocal up. You know, the vocal's a little low. 
you know, that's basically it. And they mixed a lot of the record out in, in, in uh, Long Island. At, mm-hmm. at, I think I was trying to remember the name of the spot. They always used to work out. EPMD worked out there, too. A music palace. And I didn't really go to many of those sessions. So they brought, because it's really far away, and they brought me the mixes. Mm-hmm. And we listened to mixes. And, and I actually, in retrospect, wish I had gone there, because the mixes aren't great on that record to me. Yeah, they, they, they sound very dated, I think. Right, like yeah, they, they don't. They don't sound. They don't sound as big as like Steve Etz mixes. Right, you listen to Steve Etz mixing like LL records and all the stuff that was going on. Then the records sound much more sonic. Right, right. So, but you know, it also had kind of a lo-fi right. feel to it, and that lent to the charm. I mean, that record's fucking genius. Like it's fucking, and it's also one of those records. Like I always said that that Paul's Boutique tried to outdo De La Soul Three mm-hmm. Feet High and Rising. Right, there's so many fucking samples, so much dense stuff. I remember playing parts of it for Marley and Shan in my office, and they were bugging out. Just at how many different pieces of songs was layered into each each composition. I remember Shan was like, "Damn, they used everything." Yeah, you wow. know, where a lot of people also use like one thing. Daylight would use three things from a breakbeat album. Right. So specifically in terms of the skits, had you heard anything like that? Previously, like you had you heard skits or like little pieces like that? Public Enemy did skits. They had little pieces of music, but they were all super militant. Right. None of them were playful and fun. But I, I would say the idea of skits probably came from PE, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure. You know, and also things like the Jungle Brothers Jimbrowski and the little um things that, that Red Alert would play on the radio. He had all his little skits. Okay. So all right. So I think those were all influences. See. I didn't know Red Alert was doing was doing skits on his radio show. Oh yeah, Red Alert had tons of skits. He'd be like, yeah, he had a lot like pre pre recorded like skits, had... like he would play. Uh huh. Yeah. Ooh, DJ Red Alert. You want to feel expensive? You want to feel, feel large? You want to feel, feel important? I don't want you to fax me a request. That's why right. fax me a request at the number two one two six four two four three four three. Uh-huh. And you can do. Yeah, like he had his son. Like that's my dad. Cool DJ Red Alert, yeah, <laughs> and and you know like and all these little skits like of him talking to people and their radio IDs right. basically, but, but they he, he elevated them another, to like another thing, yeah, right. And then he had his promos like you know a forty five King exclusive, mm-hmm. and that would be like some Red Alert would talk over some forty five King shit. Earlier we touched on me myself and I and and the records that they put together to make it. The last maybe two or three times I've seen De La Soul perform, when they perform that song, the hook, they changed the hook to, we hate this song, you know? So clearly that's where they stand on it. And what do you, does that make sense to you that they hate it? A lot of artists hate their hit song. Everlast never wants to jump around. Yeah. Right, so it's like you you do a song and it becomes so career defining it's bigger than your career sometimes. And De La, I left the label but stayed friends with them, mm-hmm. and they were resentful of the hippie thing. Right, they didn't, you know. And, and on the second album, they're talking about getting in fights all across the country. Yeah, because the hippie thing, people tested them for that. You know, they didn't they didn't dig it, and they weren't peace loving hippies like that. Right, you know that wasn't really you know they're just regular you know they're young black men. Was you around when they made the song It Ain't Hip To Be Labeled A Hippie? You remember that? (laughs) 
do remember that song. I can't remember if I was there. I mean, I know the song. Yeah. And, and a lot of it was you know, a reaction to, you know, all the hippie stuff. Hip-hop hippies, like it was a reaction, their anger at that. They didn't really like being pigeonholed like that. And, you know, I would say Monica had a lot to do with that, but I think there was no ill intent involved. For sure. You know, and I think they were sick of being me, the me, myself, and I group. And they had like, they had an unusual amount of white fans. Mm. Like them and Public Enemy had lots of white fans. You know what I mean? It's as simple as that. Like, and I think that they, they probably wanted they looked at themselves a little differently than they were perceived. You know, their personal, I think, uh, vision of themselves wasn't exactly what the world was seeing. And I think that's where the conflict lied. I mean, I came up with the others from the Brother Planet. That was mine. And, you know, there was the hip-hop hippie thing was Monica's. And there was always, like, little things we said, mm-hmm. right? And the, the Daisy Age. Like, she really ran with the Daisy Age, the inner sound, y'all. And I think that it started off cool. But... Daylight didn't come up with the idea for the artwork. Right. This guy's a great organization. Did they okayed it? But a lot of that was Monica's doing. And I think, look, I'm wearing a tie-dye shirt, all of that. I think it kind of grated on their nerves after a while. Mm. They felt they were, like, locked into this thing that they didn't invent. What was the label's perception of the album when it was finished? We knew we had a hit. We knew me, myself, and I was going to be a hit. We heard it. We knew it was a hit. Everyone knew it was the first single. Everyone. And what we didn't know is that it was going to hit so hard outside of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that Paul or any of us realized how, how um, vital that P-Funk sample was going to be. Right. Knee deep. I don't think anyone cognizantly used that for that reason. It was just funky to us. Yeah. And with the Rapper Dapper Snapper, which yep. is another L.A. kind of gangbang song, I mean, we didn't realize that it was going to have that effect. I think the juxtaposition of the way they're rapping over something that's funk-based right. was really cool. And it, it went super big. But we, we were 100% all aligned that that was a single. The band, Paul, all of us. So y'all are excited about the record. Y'all know y'all have a hit. Y'all don't know quite how big it's going to be, but y'all have this feeling that it's going to be successful. We didn't know how big it was going to be, but rap was about this big right then, and we had Yo! MPV in our back pocket. We had Red Alert in our back pocket. Fat Five Freddy, Pete Doherty, and Ted, who did Yo! MTV. Mm-hmm. Those were my people. Those were all of our people. We had K-Day, we had Greg Mack on Smash. We're getting daytime radio on that song. It was a no-brainer. So given that y'all had this project that y'all were excited about, but, you know, even from you being there and from you playing it for other people and even you knowing yourself, like, there's 10 million samples on this thing. Like, did that... I'm wondering what Tommy Boy's position was on, like, how much they felt like they needed to clear. We didn't feel like we needed to clear the skits. Mm -hmm. We're like, they're not songs. They're just skits. They're under X amount of minutes. We don't have to clear this shit. And it came back to haunt us. So the Turtles joint, right, because that's a skit. It's a skit. Wow, okay. That makes a lot of sense then, right? Because y'all drew a distinction between the songs and the in-between pieces, and it's one of the in-between pieces that I mean, came back. You know, we, cl- we cleared fucking Knee Deep, right? right? We, cleared, we cleared a lot of those records. Bra gets cleared. A lot of those Detroit Emeralds gets cleared. A lot of that shit gets cleared. What doesn't get cleared, Otis Redding got cleared. Julie Dan got cleared. What we didn't, Hall & Notes got cleared. What we didn't clear was that. Mm. So, I mean, think about that's it. That's interesting. Like, that's, that's, you know, just sitting here in 2021, thinking about not being able to hit that on Spotify and it's, it'd be tied up into all of these these things like 
it's so interesting to think about how that decision reverberates decades later, you know. Uh, of all of the, you know, there's, but there's tons of rap albums with tons of samples that came out at that time and since. And a lot of those have found their way into like being available, in, into being able to adapt legally and survive. And, some have and some haven't. Right. But plenty have. Yep. And, I, and I, I'm really curious in your opinion on why this album in particular, what is so, what has made it so singularly problematic in terms of it being able to live on streaming services? Well, one of it is there's precedent set, right? Mm-hmm. There was a, a major lawsuit. And then there's, there's a relationship between the label and, and the band. Mm-hmm. So, and I could be completely wrong. My understanding is that Tommy Boy would not, make themselves libelous for any of the samples mm. and they wanted to put the onus all on Dela if any lawsuits arise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Dela wasn't feeling that. That's my understanding. I could be wrong. I could be speaking out of place. That's my understanding. I think that that's part of the contention between Dela and Tommy Boy. That makes sense. That makes sense. That they don't want to have the whole onus of, of being responsible for everything uncleared because they, I think, I think they um, supposedly or did in fact come forward with all the sample information. Right. And I think there's contention whether they did or didn't, but but I don't know the intricacies. Um, I love Dela and I love Monica, who has nothing to do with the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And and Tom Silverman is Tom Silverman. And um, he's, you know, he's he's an abject capitalist, but I, he also, like, you know, I made some money with him over the years. I have mixed feelings about him, but, mm-hmm. but if you have any illusions that he's anything but an abject capitalist, um, you know, you're you're um, living an illusion. Mm. Like I think everyone knows that, Dela included. So I don't necessarily think what he's doing is vindictive. I think it's all all about money. That's right. And you know everything he does has always kind of been around money. He's on brand. So you know he's on brand. Right. You know that's just the way Tom is. So you know I, I mean I would you know I know Tom for years. I don't think he's a malicious evil person, but I think that he also is always got his eye on the dollar, and and I think that this is all about money. Mm. I think he's probably wrong. I th- you know, I think he is wrong. I think there's probably a way to, to handle it. And I think that at some point it might have became a battle of the Eagles. Daylight aired him out. And I think he, knowing Tom, his ego didn't like that. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a messy situation, man. And I think it sucks because I want to be able to play the album. I want to be able to play them first three albums. Man. I just wanted to go stream it right now. You and know I what I'm saying? Like, I think, I think it, 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 really, it really does suck that they haven't been able to... Uh, to figure it out, but, you know, we hope... I mean, what bothers me, too, is, like, look, the first record's not on there, but I like the second and third record That's better, what probably. I'm saying. The third one is one of my favorite albums of all That's time. That's my favorite. Like, Balloon Mind my favorite is, one. is, is incredible. incredible. Yeah. Super slept on. Ego Trip is, like, amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole album. I mean, all the albums. Stakes is High is really good. Yeah, like, Stakes is High is awesome. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, I like all the records. They're all great. Stakes is High may be my favorite, but Balloon My State is a motherfucker, You know what? And, it's great because the high second is, one, yeah, they're so angry. Yeah. So, they're so angry in the second one a little bit. It's great, but they're angry mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, they're mad at, like, who they are. Though there's, It's a brilliant record, but Balloon My State's really cerebral and trippy. It's fucking amazing. And it's a fully formed, own, beautiful thing. with like, And the jazz, all, I mean, the all jazz that, to it is it's crazy. It's so jazzy. You know? And then, yeah, Stakes is High is like a fully realized whole other thing that, like, was, to me, it was like the album of that time. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's a great the record. album, you know? So, you know, I, I just think it's, it sucks that we can't, 
sit and enjoy those and celebrate those the same way we do all the other music. So whenever That's I really get a chance to speak to anybody who is involved in, in those records, I, I love to get their opinions and perspective on you know, it. I never want to overstate my importance in De La, man. That's real. De La is like a, a self-contained kind of thing, and, and I was lucky enough to be around when it happened and be associated with it. Um, I didn't do a whole lot, mm-hmm. certainly far less than you know the, the real people involved, which is you know the band and Paul and... And maybe even Monica, like, mm-hmm. you know, she did a lot, you know, but I was there and, and um, I was lucky to be there. You know, it was like I, it fell in my lap and I have a lot of gratitude for, for being there. And I've, I've been lucky to be in the right place at the right time a lot of times. That's one of them times. Word. What was your relationship like with the rest of the Native Tongue movement? Oh, good, man. I mean, I was cool with all, you know, I was supposed to, I think I was supposed to be on the tribe album cover and I just didn't show up. I was oh, like in California or something. You missed the Midnight Marauders shoot. Yeah, I was oh, supposed to be on it and man. I wasn't there. I called me and I never did it, which was fucking annoying. But um, I uh, I love those guys, man. All those bands are great, man. Drez is my man mm-hmm. to this day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have nothing but love for Ali and admiration for Q-Tip. And, you know, I haven't seen the Jungle Brothers in a long time, but, you know, God bless. They were great dudes too. So, and I spoke to Moni not that long ago. Like, you know, um, it was all love, man. Those guys, they're all great people. And, and um, not a lot of, you know, like, not a lot of macho bullshit within that clique That's of dudes. And, and I love that. And I, and I, I love how they've always kind of, as a collective, um, embraced the stuff I worked with, kind of. Like, whether mm. it was KMD or Brand Nubian or, or Buster. Like, you know, there's always a synergy. Yeah, that between, was always in their that, orbit. Yeah. There's a synergy between all of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even third base to an extent. Like, we're all like kind of, there was a synergistic thing and we all kind of think along the same lines. You know, I would say like too, there's the breakbeats and then there's one step off the breakbeats, right? Mm. And maybe two steps and De La is like two steps off, right? right? Like, you know, they're the band, them and Jungle Brothers first, and then De La. Ultramagnetic is right before them. They're one step off. Mm-hmm. And then it's we get to the next and the next and the next, right? Like ultramagnetic samples like Joe Cocker. No right. one's sampling woman to woman, right? <laughs> but but then then De La samples some crazy, you know, the intruders, like it's written on the wall, like that record, like no one knows the invaders, whoever that record. It's like no one knows that record. And, you know, inspired certainly by by Ultramagnetic and, and by the Jungle Brothers to look outside of the norm record-wise. Hmm. Did you ever want to sign any of those other guys, like, since you were around I think I probably that? wanted to sign all of them. Black Sheep never came to me. Black Sheep got signed right away, mm-hmm. but I certainly would have signed them. Um, and and Tribe, I left, I left Tommy Boy, walked to an electro with the intent of signing Tribe, mm-hmm. and Jive got him from me. Damn. Damn. Wow, that's wild. Did you see Tribe being as big as they got? At their beginning. I saw him being bigger. Wow. I saw him being bigger, bigger than Dela because Q-Tip had, and a no knock on on Dela, but Q-Tip had a sex appeal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you know, women loved him, boy. Like from day one. Right. And I was like, okay. And the music was. I don't want to know if I say more palatable, but Q-Tip had such a unique voice, and Dela had already laid the groundwork. Right. So I was like, okay, the dudes who come along next going to be bigger. I, I was convinced Tribe would be bigger, and they were. Mm-hmm. Can, I knew it from jump. Wow. Man, it's just, you know, I, I, get, I get really fascinated by what it must have been like to be around and watch all that happen. Man, that's the first time I ever lost a band so, trying to sign Tribe, and it broke my heart. And to this day, <laughs> it's the one I've lost, like, t- millions now, but that one still sticks in my fucking craw because Chris Lighty was my man, Tip is my man, 
and I'm working at a label that could spend way more money and we're willing to spend more money and let them keep their publishing, but we had no track record and no credibility in the rap game. All we had was Super Lover C, and they went left on us, and, and they did the deal with Job and gave up half their publishing. Wow. When I said that to Ali on, this, on the podcast, Ali was like, damn, B, you hit me in the ribs, chill. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I do think they probably made the right career decision, but I really wish I'd signed that band. Mm. I would love to have my, that as part of my legacy because Tribe Called Quest is probably my, you know, my favorite rap group of all time up there. Now, that one, the three-album run is just unbelievable. It is. Uh, how long did you end up staying at Tommy Boy? Uh, a little less than two years. Less than two years. Yeah. So I think in terms of daylight, we'll leave that right there. And then the next time we, we speak, we're going to get into the other major signing. Well, you didn't sign Daylight, but that was a major project. But then, yeah, Queen Latifah. I mean, Queen that's Latifah, the exactly. Queen Latifah is the first group I solely signed that was successful. Well, we look forward to getting into to all of that, man. Uh, next next time we we sit down and talk. For now, um, this was mostly focused on Daylight Souls, Three Feet High and Rising, and it's a pleasure to hear from you your experiences sitting there, you know, being in the studio, like working with it from from you know day one to day whatever when it came out so i mean it was it was it was really fun working with them and and um i had i didn't know a half inch from a two inch mm. like you know what i mean i didn't know right. you didn't know shit. nothing in the studio <laughs> i didn't know shit i found out what a mute button was and you know like <laughs> it was like okay there's a button and i don't know man it was it was like on the job training and i got paid to learn shit which was fucking super cool and other thing about Calliope is it's where I met a lot of other artists. Mm -hmm. That's where we. That's where Daylight and the Jungle Brothers crossed paths the first time. Damn. Okay. So. Uh. Well, that's wild, and and we're gonna have to leave it there for now. We appreciate you, um, and we'll catch y'all next time. Next week, peace. Stony Island Audio.